What a start for Brad Hughes. 180 metres to go. Looking good. Oh, what a shot. What a shot from Brad Hughes. Oh, my goodness. What a finish for Bradley Hughes. Easing up the five, joining the lead. An amazing victory for the second time. Brad Hughes wins the Australian Masters. This time by five strokes. It's been a while since my last episode. Been moving house, been quite busy, but now we're back at it and we've got a great episode to kick things off again. Sit back and enjoy. Michael Clayton is a man of many podcasts. If you listen to golf podcasts, I'm sure you have heard Clayton deliver his perfectly reasoned thoughts on golf architecture and the equipment debate. When you listen to his opinions, you will understand how well thought out and logical they are. If golf has a voice that should be listened to from all sides of the spectrum, then Clayton's name should be at the forefront of those well-versed enough to listen to with respect and forward thinking. In part one of this two-part episode, we discuss not just his thoughts on those arguments, but we delve into Mike Clayton, the player. A side of things that will help deliver the background as to why he is such an important voice in the world of golf and where it is headed in the future. Enjoy part one of my interview with Michael Clayton. Welcome to Bradley Hughes Golf Podcast, Michael Clayton. Clates is the king of the podcast. He's on every every podcast golf-related you can imagine, and you don't have your own Clates. Well, we kind of have got state of the game with Shackleford and Rod Murray. That we, we've been doing that for seven or eight years now. But Okay, that's right. I forgot about that one. That, yeah, that, yeah. So that, that's been a good one, but... Uh, well, I, Golf Australia have one, so I do have a whole bunch of people I use for that. So I, Golf Australia, as in the the USGA equivalent, not the Golf Australia magazine. So. But yeah, we do a few. So if people are happy to listen, then I'm happy to talk. And how is the state of the game? The state of the game? Well, Rory just won 15 million, so he's pretty happy with it. <laughs> um, <laughs> the state of the game. I think the state of the game is interesting. I thought... Uh, Medina was pretty disappointing, soft, dull, uh, power, dominated by power and wedges. So the game at the top level, I think, is as skillful as the guys are. I think all top players are always skillful. You go back to Harry Varden and Bobby Jones, they were incredibly skillful. There are probably more of them now, but well, I'm certain there are more of them now because there's more money and more people play. But uh, you know, the equipment is in my eyes, far too easy to use, far too easy to drive the ball. And the ball goes too far. So we watch so many great courses reduced down to pitch and putt, really, or, or certainly drivers and short irons. It'll be interesting to see the President's Cup at Royal Melbourne this year. So in, at Medina, we saw marsh soft greens where the ball just stopped where it landed. At Royal Melbourne, you'll see the exact opposite. No pitch marks. The ball's going to bounce a long way when it hits the ground, certainly on the greens. So it'll be interesting to see how a course that's that short now, how it's still going to be difficult to get the ball close to the hole. Right, because you've got to use the, the ground or bounce it in or feed yeah, it in off slopes. Yeah. You can't just swing it next to the you hole. Can't just, you can't just land the ball near the hole. You've got, you, you, at Royal Melbourne, you've always got to, but you've got to be, you're not thinking about the hole. You're thinking about where the ball's going to land. And how, how are you going to get it to the hole from where it lands? So you've got to hit the right spin in the right shape and land in the right place. And I mean, you know what it's like playing there. It's hard enough to get 30 feet putts within five feet sometimes. So 
hitting a five iron inside 25 feet is often a great shot. So it'll be interesting to watch what happens at Royal Melbourne because it's going to be much different golf from what we see on TV most weeks. You know, wide fairways, no rough um, angles are in, are important. So if you go to the the side that's the one that offers the most advantage, you, you, you have a slightly easier and slightly clearer shot into the flag. If you go to the, the other side of the fairway, the safe side normally, then it's more problematic. And we anyway, obviously you know, grew up... Uh, sorry, we we grew up in Melbourne, so we've played Royal Melbourne a million times and, and seen all the all the weather conditions, all the elements, all the what you're just talking about there. Is that still in play with such the short clubs they're hitting on? Because you know Royals are pretty small boundary; they can't really extend holes to gr- any great length there. No, they've stretched them all back as far as they can. Really, I mean the the 18th on the compass, of course. Now 18 east is that's way back up against the fence now. Um, so it's... Um, they haven't done a St Andrews and gone into Victoria with that tee yet, though, have they? No, no. Well, they, <laughs> or, or, or over the road to Sandringham. Uh, no. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how it plays. I remember, I remember watching the best golf I ever saw at Royal Melbourne, the most interesting golf I saw at Royal Melbourne. I watched Sebi. I was going to caddy for him, but I had an exam on the Wednesday, so I couldn't. was the 1978 PGA there. And I remember, you know, seven, playing 11th with a drive and a four or five iron and um, 17 west with, you know, five and six iron second shots and, you know, two long hits over the bunkers at 17. And Seve was long. I mean, he was a power player. So, the course is much, much different from how it played then. I mean, it was 40 years ago now. But it's still, it's still difficult to get the ball close to the hole. But obviously, it's easier to get it close to a nine iron than it is with a five iron. So that's why I'm interested to see, really see how it plays. It's going to be going to be fascinating to watch how it plays. And of course, it's always reliant on. For difficulty, it's reliant on the wind. If there's no wind, it's not as um, problematic to play the golf course. But when it gets windy, especially that hot north wind, then it's really difficult. I was just but, going to ask you that. Is that the hot? Is that the the toughest wind there? Yeah, the, the hot north. That's the that's the crazy wind in Melbourne. Where the golf is, you really have to know how to play all those courses in that wind. It's just crazy difficult. I mean, I'm, I'm playing with Steve Elkington at the first at Yarra Yarra, the path which, which is now the third hole. Down the hill, the par three, we both hit drivers there in 1985. It was <laughs> imagining a driver into that hole. But of course, that day the, the weather always changes. You always get around four o'clock, the, it all, which mystifies everyone who doesn't live in Melbourne how it can go from 110 degrees in a 40-mile-an-hour wind from the north to 20 degrees in a 2-mile-an-hour wind from the south in literally an hour or half an hour. So I remember that year Bob Shearer played. He used to hate Huntingdale. He hated that golf course. I remember he, he was playing the last group on Saturday and he played 17 into, 17 into the wind and then he played 18 into the wind. <laughs> <laughs> that was, um, so, but going back to the original point, the mistake I think people make is equating the scores with that everything's okay. So I don't look at how the golf course plays in terms of clubs, but they think if they can manipulate the scores, so the scores are reasonably high, then everything's okay with the game. So they, you know, if you could take Royal Melbourne and make 30-yard wide fairways and grow that Bermuda rough at three inches and put the pins in the hard spots and eight under par would win. But it would be a complete distortion of the concept of the golf there, which was... 60-yard wide fairways, and you, rather than being told where to drive it, you have to work out for yourself where to drive the ball. And 
have to figure out your own strategy and your own path to the hole, depending on your strengths and weaknesses. Right, like the best so, angles in. Yeah, you know. So you take away all, all the you take away all the thought, and, and you just tell people where to play, and, and you might make the scores higher, but making the scores higher is completely avoiding the point of the question, which is the ball goes too far, the way the course was supposed to play. And I, and I don't ever think that it's never going to go back to the way Mackenzie saw that course playing. He built that course in, in the era of hickory shafts. So you're never going to go back to the second hole, which was 462-yard 400, par five, and it was probably two woods. You know, now it's a 510-yard par five, and it's a drive in the six iron. It's, it's never going to go back to two woods, but when we played it, you know, all those tournaments we all played, there was always a driver and a three-wood or a driver of two or a three-iron. Occasionally, if it was downwind and it was bouncy, it might have had a five-iron, but, you know, it, it, was, um, it was the way the golf course played that was critical and, and in terms of, as an architect and someone who loves the great old courses, the way they play at the top level is not ideal, far from ideal. But, you know, clearly... For 95% of people, or maybe even more, it's it's fine. I mean, they haven't, as far as I can tell, they haven't picked up any distance. So it hasn't affected the way they play. But, you know, the only thing they've done is spent way more money on equipment. That's right. Which is kind of pretty unnecessary, given that that Taylor made R7 driver of 10 years ago was a pretty playable club. But if you'd just bought every model since then, you'd have spent three thousand dollars. So who do you put probably. the blame on, like as a golf instructor now, and obviously as a former player? You can't, in my eyes, you may have a different opinion. You can't really fault the player. I mean, they're just using oh, no. they're no, using what's out there to the best of their advantage. No, nothing to the player. No, it was the it was the USGA and the RNA's their job as the administrators of the game was to, they, were, they had two jobs. One was to, in terms of equipment, one was to protect the integrity of the great courses and how they played. And the other was to maintain the skill it took to play the game. So, you know, it took a lot of skill to be a great driver with a ballada ball and a persimmon driver. And only the most skillful players were long and straight. Only guys like Nicholas, Woozy, Savvy in our time, Weisskopf, Miller probably, Norman, yeah, were long and straight. They could nail that difficult to use ball in the wind. They could nail that off a persimmon driver with the right flight and the right shape. And they could rip it out there when they got one, 300 yards. But they, I mean, Norman's average was 985 was 277. Uh, there are five women on the LPJ Tour who drive it further than that now. So, so their job was, the RNA and the USJ's job was to maintain that skill it took to play the game and, and to maintain the integrity of the golf courses. And they've clearly failed in both. I mean, everyone rips it now 300 and whatever yards i mean not that straight or act well well i mean i saw xander shoffley today hit, 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 hit the last two fairways 17 and 18 to, to get to five fairways for the day and he finished second in the tournament so you know you but it's so hard to hit 30 yard wide fairways when the ball's going 320 yards yeah you know a drive that went 280 that would be on the fairway if you just stretch it out another 20 yards it goes in the rough Using the same angle, so you know, part, so it's not the players' fault they hit so few fairways now. But and the question is, what you do about it? You know, the, the third people who are at fault are, I think, the manufacturers who 
just threaten blue murder if the RNA and the USA get to do their job, which is properly regulate the equipment. So I was walking around with the captain of the RNA at the Australian Open last year, and we were discussing it. And his one question was, "What do we do about Titleist?" You know, and you, I'm loving Titleist, and there was all the other manufacturers. I well, I'm not sure. I mean, they're the leaders of it, I think. But you know, how do you deal with the manufacturers threatening to take you to court to like see you did. over? Yeah. Well, I, I'm not. I'm not sure of the facts. I mean, I mean, Carsten was a brilliant engineer who I would be amazed if he'd got the rules wrong. And he argued black and blue that what he'd done with those grooves and those irons was within the rules. This is a, this is a slightly different question. The manufacturers haven't broken any rules, but they've fundamentally changed the way the game is played at the top level. So they're not suing the companies over an illegal ball. They're well, I think their question is, do you change the ball sophistication to drag it back to a reasonable length? And, you know, the, the, the next question is, do you bifurcate the game? So you've got one ball for top-level players, and I would say include, you know, when we were, when I was, I won the Australian Amateur with, the, I was the first guy, to, I was the only guy in the field using a big ball in 1978 because I decided if I was going to be a pro, I had to learn to play the 1.68-inch ball. Everyone else used a small ball. And it took five more years for the big ball to become mandatory uh, in big amateur events in Australia. And one more year, I, well, I think by 1978, it was mandatory on the tour, on the Australian tour. 1974 was the first British Open big ball. So do you bifurcate the game and go back to top amateurs playing with the big ball uh, with the club player, either staying with the current ball or transitioning out of it within, whatever, five years. I'm not sure how you'll do it. Or do you just make everyone change and assume that the blokes who picked up 30 yards lose 30 yards and the guys who picked up two yards lose two yards? Because if you take 30 yards off Dustin Johnson, my assumption is you're not taking 30 yards off me and you're certainly not taking 30 yards off my mum. Yes. You know. I remember uh, that. I remember I, I was just sort of playing golf then because the year you're talking about, I started pretty much playing when I was 10, so 1977. Yeah. And I started with a small ball, and I remember talk about the big ball and all that. So I, I've switched pretty early, sort of like you did. I, you know, at th that age, I had no intent or knowledge of what I was going to do in the future. But I thought, well, all the pros are using the big ball, and that's the go. So I, I learned that pretty quick. I don't really hardly remember playing with a small ball, so I don't know the difference, but you, you say there was a big difference. Well, I, yeah, I played, I played 969, so I played the small ball for sort of eight or nine years. Um, it was, it, it went further. It was much easier using the wind. It was, I think it was probably more difficult to chip with, but a part of that was that you couldn't get a ballada ball. So, the only way to stop it was to was with loft. You couldn't stop it with spin because it was a hard ball. You know, a, a small hot dot or B fifty one on Graham Grant's Kingswood Greens in the Kingswood Amateur when they were as hard as the, the floor here, it was pretty hard to stop the ball. In fact, I remember but, you saying to me uh, one of your best tournaments ever was coming ninth in the Australian Open at Victoria well, using a hot dot. Well, the hot dot. I played with David Graham the third day and I played well. We walked off the last group. We went to the scorer's tent and he said, uh, it's time you started playing with a proper golf ball. And 
we went to the Vic Open, that, which was your first Vic Open, the one I won at Metro. And we, I had to tee off the first hole with a hot dot, changed to a tightless on the second hole. And then the bus was falling. The bus was falling. I saw him watching me on the ninth hole. So I had to switch to a hot dot on the 10th tee and play the 10th hole with a hot dot before I switched back to a tightless on the next hole. So, um, yeah, and, and the hot dot, look, it, it was a great ball for the average player. It was a trivial ball, but uh, it was obviously much easier to stop a tightless on hard greens than it was a Sirlin-covered hot dot. Um, but, of course, what they figured out was how to make a ball that played like a hot dot but spun like a tightless. Correct. So yeah. they essentially rolled two balls into one and made the game infinitely easier to play. I remember my first uh, dozen titleists that I got when I was a young fella, probably 12, I guess. And I was, you would have played in these, I'm sure, the Victorian schoolboys tournaments. So you'd play three or four tournaments yep. and qualify for the final and what have you. So, yeah. And they were always just over Christmas. So I got, I got the dozen titleists for Christmas. And we're playing at Box Hill. And I smashed one down like the fourth or fifth hole. It's par five that comes back to the clubhouse somewhere. And the, you know, they didn't really care about us in those days. So the, the grounds crew were out there mowing the fairways. We've got the big gangers out. And I walk up there. I've hit this great drive up the middle. And the guy walks up to me. He hands me a, a handful of rubber bands. He said, here you go, mate. I ran over your ball. And I was, like, devastated. I, now I had, like, 11 left. Yeah. Yeah, they were gold. They will they'll, the pro trades are tightless. They were, they were gold, weren't they, those things? Because I, was, I mean, yeah, I mean, I switched to a big ball, but you, we again. You, I mean, the first time I played was a top flight, I think. I think, I think Spalding were importing top flights from America, or perhaps they were making them in Sunshine, but at the factory here. But either way, you know, Americans don't mostly don't even know that the game was bifurcated for fifty years. I mean, they switched to the big, they switched to the big ball because the small ball sat down in the in the lusher grass of America, and you know, obviously it sat up perfectly. And, on, on the beautiful turf of the links in Scotland. So the small ball, I think, the history of it was it sat down lower in the ground, in the softer ground in America, so they just made the ball bigger to make it easier to hit, which happened in the, look, I think in the 20s or 30s, 20s probably. But the rest of the ball carried on playing with the small balls. So for you know, the, the opponents of bifurcating the ball in America, most of them forget that the game was bifurcated for, for 50 years. You know, so it's been through that you know, the change already. And, of course, the threat is that people will give up golf if they lose distance. Well, did you ever hear of anyone giving up golf in Australia when they had to switch to the big ball? Absolutely well, no not. One I knew, no one I knew gave up. So, you know, it's a preposterous idea that people will give up golf if you take t- take distance away from them. It's yes. just ridiculous. Well, 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 the proof around the rest of the world was that that didn't happen. You know, in theory... They took 25 yards off everybody. Of course, they didn't in practice. But, I mean, Billy Dunk was a great small ball player. He hated playing with the big ball. And he played well with it. But, you know, he'd played, his, you know, he'd played for 30, 25 or 30 years with a, with a small ball because he played primarily pro golf in Australia. And he hated that big ball. Hated it. You know, it just didn't suit the way he played. And, I mean, he learned to play it. But he, 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 always, he played his best golf with a small ball. Now, you but probably know this. Like, um, when Hogan went to the British Open in, nine, in 1953, did he switch balls? I, I think he did, yeah? Yeah, he used a small ball, yeah. 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 I, mean, every, I mean, everyone switched. I mean, Nicholas played down in Australia, and he always, I mean, they all played the small ball down here. 
So I was discussing this, arguing, discussing, slash whatever with someone on Twitter the other day. I think it was Twitter. And he was saying, well, you know, no, it wasn't. It was the Gold Club Atlas thing. And this guy was arguing that the, the the big ball was better. I said, well, if it was better, why did Nicholas use a small ball in the British Open? Why, why did every time Jack have the chance to play the small ball, did he play the small ball? In fact, to the point where he came down here and played the Open at Royal Hobart and the Dunlop at Manly, won them both, and then flew back the next week and played the World Cup in Florida and played the small ball because the, 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 it was optional. That World Cup in Florida was in 71 was optional. So he flew back with Torino to play with Trevino and he used a small ball in Florida. So given that he had a choice, he clearly opted for the advantage of the extra length he got with the small ball. So I want to go back to McKenzie again that we talked about before about Royal Melbourne. Um, you know, he, he came out to Australia, obviously, and put his blueprint on a few places there. You'd know a lot more about this than me. The, the design at Royal Melbourne, how did he alter it? Like, was it, most of it was already there or that someone else had designed it and he added his touch to it and but he's got his name on it. Yeah, there's a guy called John Green who did a book with Neil Crafter who knows the exact history of that. Um, remember, if you drive it on, if you imagine driving it uh, about 360 yards off the 17th west into the tea tree there on the corner, you know the tea tree down there on the right? There's a bunker in there. It's an old greenside bunker. So... John Green knows all the routing changes that Mackenzie made, and he changed, he changed it quite a bit. I mean, obviously, there was already a course there. And so, so he rerouted it. And I don't know exactly how much he did there. I mean, Morecambe, you know, I suspect he rebuilt all the bunkers and changed quite a lot of greens. And, but he was only here for three months. So, you know, he can't have done that much in the time, given that he did plans for Royal Adelaide, uh, Royal Sydney, the Australian, Royal Queensland, Kingston Heath, Metro, Victoria. So, you know, it was easy to build the world in seven days and do what Mackenzie was supposed to have done in Australia in three months. <laughs> but um, he certainly changed the routing. What he did primarily, I think, was, you know, as Tom Doug said, which was pretty accurate, he said there weren't any good courses before he got there. And there were no good courses built after he left which wasn't exactly true because Lake Russell was his partner, did Yarra Yarra and Lake Karen up. But, it, but it's, a, it, it's not that far off the mark. So Mackenzie came down and showed Alec Russell, who was an Australian Open champion, Royal Melbourne member, and his design partner. He, he showed Russell, and Morecambe, who was a Royal Melbourne greenkeeper, he showed them what he wanted. He, he showed them how to build it. That already read Golf Architecture, which, which was Mackenzie's 1920 book. So, so they knew what he was on about. And he came down and he spoke to committees and wrote plans about this is the sort of, you know, this is the way I think golf should be played. And he spoke about wide fairways and giving players space to play and, you know, advantaging a player who had driven to a particular part of the fairway. and Minimal hazards, but bunkering the corners of holes where the ideal drive was going to go and, and, and making the game playable for, whilst at the same time making the game playable for everybody. So the, the genius of Royal Melbourne, I think, was that the poorer you are as a player, the easier that golf course gets. As in, it's easy, it's a really easy golf course to shoot 90 on if you're an 18 handicapper. But the better you 
are as a player, the more difficult that golf course gets. The more difficult it is to shoot 67 if you're a tour player. Whereas if you go to, I mean, I always use Coolum as an example. Do you ever play a tournament at Coolum? I, I did, yeah. Yeah. So I always thought Coolum was the better you were as a player, the easier that golf course got. And the worse you were as a player, the harder it got. So for us, it was pretty easy to shoot under par 67, whatever, 68. But for a 20 marker, they were in the water all day and they were going to shoot 110. It was a nightmare <laughs> for them. You know, it was, it was water everywhere. You know, it was the complete opposite in terms of concept. So, so, so Mackenzie and the, you know, the influence he had in the sand bullet, what I was talking about, about it being easy for 18 handicappers to shoot, play bogey golf. You look at all those golf courses, Yarra Yarra, Metro, Victoria, uh, Kingston Heath, that concept plays over pretty well onto all those courses. I mean, they're smaller bits of land, so they're not quite as wide, but, you know, so Royal Melbourne's on a grander scale. But that concept works really well. You know, to play well on those courses, you've got to play really well. But if you're smart, you can run the ball onto the green and drive the ball to the wider part of the fairway and play safely away from the bunkers around the greens and chip the ball on 20 feet away and two putt and make a bogey all day. Right, like a and, perfect and, example for play me the of handicap. that would be the six hole, the you know, what used to be the six. I don't know what it is now. Yeah, yeah, you know, six, the, six west, yeah. yeah the, the bad third golfer on, can the... drive it left, bunt it up the front right and have a putt on or chip it up and make a five, no problem. And your good player, you know, hit a, has to carry a little bit on the bunker maybe to get at the left flag and sticks it in the bunker and makes six. Well, Ernie, made, Ernie drove it down there. Did he make eight or nine or something from the middle of the fair with a wedge in his hand? Yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, if you, I mean, I remember Jessica Corder won the Australian Open there the first time she ever played the golf course and I carried for her in a practice round. Before the last round, I saw the pin was over left on the sixth hole and I said, whatever you do, I don't care where you drive it, whatever you do, do not go anywhere near that flag. Hit it over to the right. And if you're three-putt it from 50 feet right, that's fine. But do not go with that flag under any circumstances. And she didn't. And won, I mean, not that that was, you know, she made a four and won the tournament. But, you know, not, you know that wasn't a critical hole. But, you know, that's such a dangerous flag there. And, and, of course, the greatness of that hole is the further you drive it, the worse the angle. You know, the, ideal, you know, the ideal drive there is kind of a high, softish cut that carries the bunkers and doesn't run very far, you know, and that opens up that angle into that left flag. But if you're just standing there with a driver and bomb it over the bunkers and run it on the other side of the fairway, the only shot you've got really is to hit it 40 feet right of the hole. And that's a good shot. And, and then it's a great two-putt from there. Yeah. But, I mean, I, I mean, which opens up the – I mean, I think – I think they get the greens too fast there at times. I, mean, I don't think Mackenzie ever saw that green running at 14 on a set metre. When he built that green in 1926, my, my guess is that maybe it was running at eight or nine, but, I mean, that green's gotten so fast now. It's, it, I mean, well, it was, it was brutal when Crockford set it up in the 1974 for that Chrysler Classic Bob Shearer one. So it's been a brutal green for, for more than 40 years, but... I, mean, I don't think Mackenzie ever saw that green running at the speeds it was, you know, it gets to be played at now. But either way, if you, it, it's not much fun playing it, but it's kind of an evil fun watching pros tormenting themselves trying to putt it. I remember watching um, that, that, the World Cup there in 1972, and I, I met Tom Weisskopf years later in China, and we were talking about it. He said, that green, he said, that's the only green I ever fought putted when I tried on every putt. <laughs> you know, just a brutal green. I think I anyway, saw David um, Graham four putt there. 
Yeah, I saw, I saw Bob Charles putted off the green, and he was the best player in the world. <laughs> yeah. And so that was when the pin was in the, in the right. If you love golf and want to get better, check out my website, bradleyhughesgolf.com. And for all my latest videos and updates with great information to help you become better, check out bradleyhughesgolf-members.com. You mentioned earlier that you had the chance to caddy for Seve and missed out because you had a, an exam. So I always found that interesting because obviously you're a little bit 10 years, 12 years older than me. But um, at that point, you you went to, we call it college, everyone over here calls it university. And you might be the only golfer from Australia I ever knew that went to college or university. No, Roger Mackay did. Okay. Roger was, did geology and in Australia. I mean, obviously, that's right. Elkington went to you know, yeah, there weren't many. I mean, I mean, look at, you know, Peter Senior. I mean, Peter and grades, Wayne Grady basically left school at 15, 14 or 15. I mean, Chuck was in a pro shop at 16. So... I think Finchie too. Uh, Finchie was too. Yeah, I'm trying to think of the pros who, yeah, I mean, certainly Shearer, Stanley, Guinea. Guinea went and worked in the office at Royal Melbourne. Bob went to work for Slazenger's. Stanley was working for Spalding. Um, Brian Jones was in the pro shop. Graham Marsh was a school teacher. So Marsh, you obviously went to university at some point. I mean, Marsh, was a school teacher. He turned pro at 24. Terry Gull was a, he really, he had a family farm and was, he was working in the, he was selling cars in Perth. So if you go through all the guys, yeah, I mean, not many went to uni. Um, you know, Pambling was a, uh, Pambling and O'Malley were greenkeepers. You know, I mean, they're both qualified greenkeepers. So, so Going to university wasn't really a, the path that most golf pros went down. Especially seeing you got to miss out caddy and for Seve. Well, I, was, I, I really regret that. I mean, <laughs> yeah, looking back now, I should, yeah, it was because, you know, I mean, you, you remember um, Jimmy Carter was Seve's manager in uh -huh. Australia. Jimmy, Jimmy was Ed Barner's agent in Australia. So Jimmy had arranged for me to caddy for him. And I, like two weeks before, I was like, Jimmy, I can't believe it. I've got this exam on Wednesday. So, so it was, I mean, I. It was a bit much to ask him to um, caddy Tuesday, then miss the pro-am, and then turn up on Thursday again. So, but I watched him play. I think I watched him play every hole pretty much that week because he he was he was everybody's hero back in 1978. Who, who you know he was the he was the king to watch, and and that was his that that was the well. Often I've often told the story. He he's the only player ever to have won at Mackenzie's. Well, two of Mackenzie's probably best three courses, Augusta and Royal Melbourne, and Mackenzie's favourite course at St Andrews. So no one's ever won big tournaments on those three courses. I mean, Nicholas never really played at Royal Melbourne in his prime. So Feldo never won at Royal Melbourne. And yeah, Watson think, uh, never Watson won at... Watson missed out at St Andrews. Watson never won at St Andrews. So, but, but you look at those three golf courses and... and you're going back to golf course design, Mackenzie would have loved the way Seve played golf. He would have loved the way he played with freedom and joy. And, you know, what, he, he, he thought, you know, narrow fairways made for boring golf. So he didn't mind giving players leeway off the tee. But, but he, whilst he would give them leeway, and, and, you, and you get this at Augusta and at St Andrews and at Royal Melbourne, you, you, you have the leeway. But if you hit the wild drive onto the wrong side of the fairway, then you've got a much more difficult shot. And if you're good enough, but, but if you're good enough, it gives you a chance to pull off that shot because you're not playing it out of six inches of long grass. 
So if you drive it way to the right on 17 West at Royal Melbourne, and you've got a four-on in over that bunker to the back right flag, he, he, he gives you a chance to go at it. I mean, if you go in the right bunker, then it's pretty much an automatic bogey. Or you can play safely left onto the far left side of the green, but then you've got a, a really difficult 50-foot two-putt. So it's not the immediate punishment, but it just makes the second shot that much more difficult to, you know, what do I do now uh, other than just hack it out? So... Royal Melbourne, I mean, Mackenzie didn't know it, but he was building that course for Seve. But, but he, was a fan of, he was a fan of Hagen. I mean, he loved the way Hagen played golf. And Hagen played like Seve, really. You know, tended to be on the erratic side, but a brilliant player of recovery shots and played with flair and imagination. And, you know, the opposite of the brilliant Hale Owen, who, who I watched shoot 64 at Royal Melbourne the first round in 78, it was just a stream of incredible shots, but just on a rope. You know, it was a much different game he played than Seve played, which is, you know, no surprise that Owen won three US Opens and Seve won three British Opens. <laughs> I remember playing with uh, Ben Crenshaw over here once and I asked him, or I related the story to him. You'll, you'll be able to tell me the year. Um, it was one of those PGAs at Royal Melbourne. I, I walked in, whatever time it was, just before lunch to go watch, and he was on the tee. So, 1979, yep. And he birdied the first and then he birdied the second and, and he remembered it vividly, even told me what eventually how he messed it up, but he birdied the first seven holes at Royal Melbourne. Yeah, it was 1979, the year Guinea won. Didn't he double the eighth or something? He stupid? doubled the Didn't eighth, exactly right. He doubled yeah, the eighth, yeah. He hooked it which in is, the, which, which the is, People who don't know the eighth hole, it's a two-on and a pitch. You know, it, it's, if you're ever going to birdie one of the, one of the first eight holes at Royal Melbourne, it'd, well, the two holes you birdie would be the second and the eighth. But again, genius hole that, you know, if you take on too much, then it'll kill you. You know, there's that massive deep bunker, which is that probably the hardest 50 yard bunker shot in golf, completely blind, 15 feet deep from the base up to the top of it. You know, it's a 50, it's a horrible 50 yard bunker shot. It'd be easier if it was a 90 yard bunker shot, but it's that awful 50 yard bunker shot where you can't blast it, but you can't take a full swing at it. If you hit it clean, you go either over the fence or out the back where, where you where you got no chance to make make anything but five or six. Yeah, but I mean those greens were made for him. He was a genius on those greens. Crenshaw, just an amazing putter. And, um, he was playing with Yonix. Remember that he had the Yonix bag. Oh, did he really? I remember Monty yeah. and Scott Hoke, uh, Wayne Levy yeah, yeah. were Yonix. I didn't know Ben was. Yeah. I, I think he, I think he had, yeah I think seventy nine. I think he had a Yonix bag. I might be wrong, but I'm pretty sure it was a Yonix bag. So we can yeah. talk all day about the golf course yep. and all that. We're gonna we're gonna come back to that. We'll run this out for a while, even if we have to do two episodes with it, because it's all interesting stuff. But a lot of your uh, podcasts or talk has a lot to do with equipment, state of the game, what have you. Let's talk about Clate's supplier, because that's how I knew you first. I think I first met you when I was maybe thirteen years old or so, and watched you play. Yep. And, uh, obviously won the amateur stuff and you said you won the, the Aussie amateur using the the uh, big ball and we got something in common we both won the Victorian amateur twice so that was yeah that was a, that was a, that was a, that was a massive tournament for us as kids the Vic amateur was a huge tournament you know it, uh, I think golf tournaments they see, they were bigger then because they were in the paper you know Don Lawrence would come down and there'll be a headline in the on the back page of the Heralds so it's, it seemed like it was a bigger tournament than it probably was I mean now there isn't. There's nothing in the papers, so it just 
I'm sure to the kids that I'm sure it seemed bigger to us then because it was in the newspaper. You're right. I'm not sure if that makes any sense. But, yeah, I get it. I mean, now, you know, there are no reporters. It's not in the paper. It just doesn't seem as big, even though it's exactly the same problem as always was. It was just, yeah, anyway. So, I, I, you know, a, we played for Australia, obviously not together, but I, I'm interested in, you know, when I was an amateur, we got a few trips overseas and that here and there. I went to Sweden and Thailand and New Zealand. Um, but we didn't do it on our own coin. It was part of a team thing. But you won the Korean amateur and the Dutch amateur. How did you, how'd you get to go over there? I won the Korean amateur. I won the Korean. Well, I won the. It was the. It was the. It was the Korean. It was the May Kung Open, which, which was on the Asian tour. Every, every you played ten countries, and every tournament was it was the, was the national open of that country, except for the one in Japan. But and, and we all thought Korea was the Korean Open, but it was in fact the May Kung Open, which was a, which is still going. But I won the Dutch amateur because I went to Roger Mackay, John Kelly, Tony Gresham, and I were in a. Australian team that went to Europe to play the British Amateur in 1980. And uh, I, Roger and I stayed on. We, we separated. We, we split up. He, he went and did his thing in Europe. And I, I stayed on and played. I played. Um, well, I played. I, I stayed there for three months. I played the, I played the Dutch Open. It was That's right. I stayed for the British Open. I missed the qualifying. I completely messed up the last hole and missed the qualifying for the 1980 Open at Muirfield. Then I went to the Dutch Open the next week. Somehow I got in the Dutch Open. I made the cut, which meant you got in the next week. You automatically qualified to, to play. So I, got, so I went to the Benson Hedges. Missed the cut there. But I met a girl in Holland the week of the Dutch Open. So I went back to see her. It turned out the Dutch Open was on the week after in the Hague. So I said, can I play? They said, yeah, sure you can play. So I entered that and so I won that. So that was a that was a kind of a cool tournament. Yeah, it was a. So the only reason I came back, she, she was a great girl. The only reason I came back was we had to come back and play the Port Phillip before we went to the Interstate Series in Hobart, which was really annoying because I, I was planning on I wouldn't have minded staying a few more months, but anyway, <laughs> um, yeah. So I stayed over there for three months, and I think I went with. I think I had maybe five hundred dollars in my pocket, maybe. For three months, maybe a thousand, I can't remember. So got you know, the AGU paid our fares over there. But once the trip was up, which, which was only three weeks, you know, I had I had that money in my pocket to no credit card, don't ring up your parents to ask for more money, make it last. So we were good at we, you know, we I, I made it last. It was and it was a great education. I mean, travelling and you know, we, we would get the ferry across from um, Amsterdam to to Hull to, to to York and back and. You know, there wasn't any flying in those days. I remember rooming with Noel Ratcliffe and uh, I mean, no one had a car. You know, it was just kind of taxis. And so in a way, it was learning to play the tour on the smell of an oily rag, which is the way everyone did it then. <laughs> so, so it was a great money. education for me. Yeah, yeah, without making any prize money. Well, I, I played the Dutch Open. I finished, you know, 25th or something. And the guys, you know, they made, they made like 400 pounds. I mean, that was a fortune. So here I was, but but I was. It, it was a great education and great fun. And Seve won. Seve beat Sandy Lowell. I, I remember going out and watching them play the the back nine, and I mean that was when they were the, they were the kings of the world. Those two guys, they could really. I mean they were obviously you know, two of the best. Well, they were they were probably the two best young players in the world then, playing head to head. And Seve was Seve was just better. Seve just you know he kind of knew he was going to win. You know as great as Sandy was, Seve was. At that point he'd. 
won the Masters and the Open. You know, he, was, he, he won two majors, and I mean, he was two months. Well, he, he was a month older than I was. And here I was playing amateur golf, you know, thinking I was pretty good being the leading amateur in the Dutch Open, and this guy the same age as me had already won two majors. So you can imagine how big I he was. I did hear Seve say something that you know, if anyone could beat him or who had more talent than him, and he said Sandy Lyle. Is that right? He did. Yeah. yeah someone asked him a question. He said, if, if, you, if you guys all played your best, referring to Lyle, Langer, Felder, Woozy and Seve, uh, if you guys all played your best, who would win? He looked at, he looked at this guy like he, he said, he looked at me like I, was stupid, or like I was stupid. He said, well, Sandy, you know, of course Sandy would win. <laughs> you know, what do you mean? Of course Sandy would win. So uh, Sandy, well, uh, when, the, when the exhibition tent at the Open was a, was a proper exhibition tent and not just a merchandising Tent that it, is, that it turned into. Dunlop used to have a, used to have a big stand there. I remember going to the Open in seventy first Open seven no nineteen eighty, and they had film of Sandy winning the European Open at Turnby. Shot sixty three the last round at Turnby, and it seemed like every iron shot he hit, he hit to within five feet of the hole. You know, five, six, seven, eight irons. I mean, not wedges, but he shot sixty three the last round to win in Turnby. It was a European Open, and just They'd film with this thing. They kept replaying it over and over. And I watched it. It was like it was amazing golf that he played. But I mean, as a teacher, I mean, the most interesting thing for me would be your opinion of what happened to Sandy. I mean, he was, you know, he went from being, you know, won the Players Championship, and then pretty much lost it almost in no time. It just went. It was gone. Yeah, that's interesting because to me, his gone. swing, yeah. you know, doesn't look all that different, you know, during that period. But, yeah. um. Didn't his father die or something? He was like his coach or something, and maybe he lost interest or lost trust. No, or... no, no well, his father taught him, but his father died before. You know, he still played well after that. But, okay. But I, I remember he played well on the West Coast, probably in eighty. He was he won the Masters in eighty eight, right? And then he went to eighty seven or eighty eight. Eighty one in Greensboro as well, like right. Eighty eight. Yeah, eighty eight. Then he he went over the next year and he, and he played well on the West Coast and he went over to Florida. And he missed the cut, didn't play well, missed the cut when he defended the Masters. And he just, he just, he just never really played well after that. He just kind of lost it. You know, he won a couple, he won at Valderrama. And, but he really struggled. You know, he, he had that funky little backswing and it went in and it was a bit in and flat and he kind of lifted it up to get to the top and it was three quarters. And, but he just had an amazing hand and he smashed it. But, um, I yeah, remember playing like with him in San Diego yeah. one year. Mm. We were on. Uh, have you ever played at Torrey Pines or seen it? No, but I've, yeah, I've seen it. Yeah. Okay, so there's a hole out in the inlet there. I think it's about fourteen or fourteen, I think. And yeah. it was pretty strong wind, and it was cold day, the crappy weather in January there, February, whenever it was. And I was playing with the last round. We were doing okay. We were near the top ten, and I'm going to say we had about 170 yards or 165 yards in into the wind. And it's a tough, tough shot because it's on a, you know, the ocean's right over the back. And, yeah. And I, I hit a six iron, just a little six iron under the wind or everything, something like that. And he hit a nine iron. And it's like he hit it so high that the wind didn't touch it. I've never seen anyone hit it over the wind. That's what I said. And I said, dude, how do you do that? But it was yeah. like a shot that just floated and, and all the power. And like you just said, he just absolutely smashed this thing three clubs different to me and, and got it there no problem. Yeah, I remember, I remember playing at Chepstow in Wales and he did that with an eight iron. He hit this eight iron shot. You've never seen anything go so high. Like, why would you hit it that high? What's the point of it? But 
It just, it just, yeah, even it was a great shot. It was a terrific shot, but it was, it was amazing how high he could hit, he, he could hit that short iron, that late iron, and how far he would hit it. And imagine how far he hit it now. I mean, he'd be massively long now. But he really crushed it. He was, he hit it really solidly. I remember playing with Sam Torrance one year at Port Marnock in the Irish Open, the 17th hole, into the wind. When we hit those into the wind, you'd put it back and you'd try and hit that low screwy thing that would run out there. He hit this Harold Harry Busson driver, tightless ball. And he hit straight up into the air, and it, it just went. And I said, why do you hit it so high? He said, well, if you hit it properly, it doesn't matter. <laughs> and it just went straight through the wind, like, like a low ball, but it was a high ball that went straight through the wind because he, he, just, he just smashed it. It was a beautiful hit. But, it, you know, he made no effort to keep it down. He just bombed it high up. And, and Watson played the same way in Britain. You never saw Watson hit a punch shot in, in the open. It was always a full follow through and a full shot hit up into the air. But he hit it so solidly, it just went through the wind. It was amazing how they played those guys. I think I watched you play with him. Did you play with him at Royal Melbourne one year? Yeah, the first two rounds in 84. Yeah, and he, he won the yeah. tournament, yeah. Yeah, he buried the first three holes. Yeah. But that was funny. You know, he was this guy that was famous for being an aggressive putter. He had that – he had a – he had a, um, it was a – I think it was a double eight oh two. It was certainly that model putter. Sorry, you know, the, the, might have been a double eight one three or an Arnold Palmer or whatever, but it was, it was a silver blade putter. Yeah, I remember how tentative he was on those greens. It, you know, it, it almost looked like he'd lost his nerve. I mean, they were incredibly fast greens, and it was probably the right way to putt them. But he, you know, for a guy who was supposed to be a really aggressive putter, it was amazing how defensively he putted that week, and and, and how. I won't say he putted poorly, but he certainly didn't putt that well. I mean, he won that tournament because he just he ripped it. I mean, he drove it long and accurately, and you know, he played beautifully. And, and then shot a shot a really shot a really good score the last day. Bob Stanton finished second. People people won't remember Bob Stanton. Yeah, the comeback he was, kid. Bob Stanton was he was Greg Norman before Greg Norman. He he beat Arnold. Bob Stanton beat Arnold Palmer at the Australian in the Dunlop when it was the the Dunlop and the Open were the two biggest tournaments in the country. Stanton was 19 in 1966, and Palmer was pretty much the, well, he was the second best player in the world. So for a 19-year-old kid to go to the Australian and beat Arnold Palmer was pretty amazing, head to head. And he finished his first year on the US Tour was 1970, and he finished as a pre, he got got his card in 1969, I think, at the Tour School, and he made, he finished 56 on the main list. In 1970, he's a 23-year-old pre-qualifying. Made the cut, you kept going, missed the, the qualifier, you went back and played Mondays. So the 23-year-old to finish in the top 60 on the US Tour in 1970 was pretty impressive. Beautiful swing, he ripped it. But I, I suspect he got distracted along the way. <laughs> you know. But he was, a, he was a beautiful player, Bob Stanton. And what about the, uh, you know, my first foray into, I wasn't a pro, obviously, I was only 15, on my 15th birthday, the Vic Open at Metropolitan in 1982, and Lee Trevino was the big guest star, and of course, Greg Norman played, and Marshy, and all the all the big players, but a guy called Michael Clayton won it, and you probably not long out of uh, amateur ranks, were you? No, I'd be, I turned pro in October, in September of the year before. And I went to the shows how as a teacher this um, you'll you'll um, reflect on this and, and understand how this works. 
I played well. I played well in that open at Red Victoria. I finished ninth, so I made the top sixty. So I was exempt, which was a big deal because. And then I played well in Adelaide and went to Hobart. Went to Hobart, Tasmania, and played terribly. And I remember the last day I got to the fifteenth hole. I had a swing thought. I had this you know, this swing thought jumped into my head. So I. I had a beautiful tee shot. I felt good. Had a nice little wedge up there. Playing at Tasmania Golf Club. 16, I had a beautiful drive. Great three-wood. Nice little pitch shot. 17, had a nice drive. Ripped a four-iron to about eight foot. Oh, this, this feels fantastic. So I got in the last hole at Tasmania Golf Club. End of the wind, the par three up the hill. I hit this perfect four-iron. Just ripped it. Goes in. Hole in one. <laughs> For 76... And I won five thousand bucks, which was an absolute fortune. I mean, the guys who Colin Bishop won, Guinea and Jack Newton and someone else finished second. And I went to the presentation and got a check for five thousand dollars. And Jack looked at me and said, "You prick!" He said, oh, "I can finish second here. I made two and a half thousand bucks. You, you shot three hundred and three and won five thousand. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, I go to the next week, get in the first hole. This swing thoughts, you know, still going well. First hole, nice drive. Six iron to the first green match. I nearly hit it in the lake. Like a horrendous shot. Way left of the six iron. Pitch it on. Make five. And then I birdied four, five, six, seven, and eight. Shot 67, led. Made a hole in one on Saturday and made another 20 grand. Playing with Torino and won the tournament. Went to the next week at Huntingdale and that swing thought was complete. It would not work. It just, it was gone. You know, and that, and that was the way I think we all played from there. You know, you know, we would get a feel, we'd get a swing thought, it'd work for a week or two and, and it would go away again. And I think our, I mean, certainly my swing was so fundamentally unsound that that was the way I played my whole career. And, and most guys did, I think. I mean, now I see, you know, I think that the goal swings are much more orthodox and, and much more, there's the, the, the certainly a sameness to a lot of goal swings because, there's a sameness to the correct swing plane going going back to the top of the backswing, I think. You know, I mean, Mac O'Grady talks about P2, 3, P, P2, P3 and P4. And, and you see so many guys who just hit those points perfectly to, to the top of the swing. And then, you know, it makes it so much easier to make the downswing, I think. But, but as a teacher, you'll understand that way better than me. But, you know, if you looked at all the guys who played in our era, Everyone had a kind of, you know, you, you, you knew Graham Marsh's swing from Terry Gale's swing, from Peter Senior's swing, from Jack Newton's swing, from Bob Shearer's swing. They all, and, you know, from Torino's swing, the, my swing to your swing, to Wayne Grady's swing, to Fenty's. They're all, they all looked quite different. But now I think, you, you know, you see more sameness and, and more orthodoxy and, and more, you know, technically better swings than our era. But then you go back to Thompson's era. And you saw Thompson and Nagel and Von Nider and, and Billy Dunk was older, but, you know, Sarah's and where it was, again, it was, you know, I, I suspect, it, it's a bit of a cliche, but I suspect that we grew up in that era where, where everyone idolised, you know, Weisskopf, Nicholas Miller and tried to copy that look. Whereas if we'd grown up in Thompson's era, you know, well, I suspect Thompson grew up idolising the look of guys like Sarazen. Mm-hmm. Which were much, much neater, much more rotary. The arms went flying everywhere. But, but it seemed the concept of the modern swing was, you know, big wide back swings and driving legs and reverse C's. And 
So that was the era we grew up in. Yeah, was, like now it's know. keep your feet planted, you know, no weight shift as much, jump in the air. Yeah. Yeah, the, the, yeah, the, I mean, the, the Justin Thomas, I mean, hitting the ball with both your feet, almost a tree in the air. You know, so, so it's, so it's, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, you know, it's something you understand way more than me, but, you know, I mean, I, I grew up the first time I ever saw, I'd been playing golf for five years before I ever saw it. It was one of those eight frame photos that, remember that guy Bruno used to come out and take the photos? Yes. They, in, in fact, Twitty had one of those cameras and Twitty took a picture of my swing. I was, I was 17, I think. It was the first time I'd ever seen my swing. So, you know, I'd ingrained five years of, you know, vertical shaft at P3, a big kind of loop from the top and, you know, flying right elbow. And I'm, I had it all perfect, you know. I thought, my God, that's no good. But now, you know, the first golf swing you make, your dad's probably recorded it on, on, the, on, his, on his phone. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So, you know, I suspect we'd have grown up with much different golf swings if we'd seen them as 12-year-olds and, you know, been, you know, it's, you know, get the shaft over here more and get your elbow under here more and do this and do that. And, but all, all, all anyone would have been telling you was telling you to do what Peter Thompson was doing, I think. Does that make sense to you? Or? Yeah. I, I really don't have any footage of my swing growing up. I've got a few photos. Yeah. A couple of friends might have taken me on the driving range one day. I had no reference. It was all feel-based or or mimicking someone like my my mimic was the shark. I loved his swing and I tried to copy him and try to hit it like him. Yeah. Whether, whether it looked like it or not, I don't know, but it, you know. Well, well, it did because you had the, which is what Jeff Parzo, who was a tremendous player and what, you know, I remember him saying to me, take the club, your left arm, left shoulder, left hand and the club head, take it back as far as you can without breaking your right wrist, which was what I, which was what, his interpretation of what Nicholas did was, mm-hmm. and that was what Greg did, and that was what you did. For my memory, you, you know, you had the club, you know, really uh, uh, what Mac would call P three with left arm parallel. Your club was really wide. Yeah, I nearly my right arm didn't actually almost break until the transition. I could keep it yeah. straight almost up to the top. Yeah. Now, yeah, no one would teach that now. No. Well, everyone tried to teach that out of me. That's why I can't do it anymore. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, given your knowledge that you have as a teacher now and 13-year-old Bradley Hughes comes to you with that backswing, what do you do to it? Absolutely nothing. Nothing. Let him play with it. Yeah, just let him go. Yeah. And I see that. Like some people have facets to their swing when I do my lessons now that, you know, and they'll say to me or I say to them, yeah, what have you been working on? What are you having trouble with? And they, they give you the... Well, you know, I think I'm doing this. I think I'm doing that. I go, yeah. uh, uh-uh, don't, don't touch that. Like that's that's one of your best attributes. We've got to build yeah. something off that. Don't don't change that because, you know, every little one thing you change basically has a cause and effect on another area you swing, and that's not the one you want to change. Yeah. Well, if you make one change, you've got to make two, right? Yes. There's always a yin. You can't just make one change. Yeah. So the way I grew up playing, which I did, I mean, people said you pick it up. No one could articulate the fact that my shaft was vertical where, where Nick Price had it at P3. So, so where my left arm was parallel, the shaft was vertical and, and the butt of the club was pointing way inside my feet. So, so way inside the ball. And then, and then everyone, you pick it up and then you loop it. Well, of course you loop it because, because the shaft's so vertical. If you didn't loop it, you'd be a 28 handicap. Yeah, you wouldn't hit the, the ball. ball. So, so, so of course the shaft's got to drop down. So they would say, well, you're looping it. So 
you know, I know, okay, so I lose this. I've got to try and keep my wrist firm at the top and not loop, and not loop the club. But, you know, I didn't, no one explained to me, and, I, and of course I couldn't see it. Well, your shaft's vertical on, on uh, P3, so of course you've got to loop the club. And that was the way I learned to play. And that was the way Pricey largely played. I mean, Pricey had that, you know, that big, you know, that from the top of the screen, the club would drop down. And, and that was one, it was the opposite of the way Craig Parry and Ray Floyd played. I guess. Yeah, I would liken your backswing to something that Allenby did. Maybe his was even a little bit more severe. Yeah, sort of, perhaps. I don't know. But yeah. yeah, pick it up. Well, I, when I first started coaching Robert, he'd, he'd left Steve Bann and been doing it on his own and eventually got a coach and they tried to change his backswing, you know, flatten it out. But basically from there, he didn't know what to do. He, he was used to what you yeah. said, you know, picking it up, dropping it in and going for it. Yeah, yeah. So you got to be really careful. A, yeah. Yeah, which is why, I mean, you know, teaching is such a difficult thing to do, I think. I've never been a teacher, but the only thing I know about teaching is it's really hard and, and most, you know, the easiest thing to do is mess someone up. <laughs> you know, it's, um, it's really tricky. It's really tricky. But, um, because it's the old, you know, I look at, I went to a dinner the other day where Lynchy spoke about Aaron badly and, you know, watching that, Aaron win that open at Royal Sydney at 18. And I, I wrote an article in the paper saying it would be no surprise. The, the week before, I spoke to him in Adelaide the week before, and I said, we're writing, it would be no surprise if this kid won the open next week. And it wasn't. That was no surprise he won that tournament. So, so Lynch had taken him from a 13-year-old or 12-year-old beginner to an Australian Open champion in six years. And two years later, David Ledbetter is telling him his face is too shut at the top of his swing and he, and, and he needs to change it all. And he's been statistically the poorest ball striker. If, greens and regula- if, if, if fairways hit and greens and regulation are the measure of the quality of someone's ball striking, statistically he's been the poorest ball striker on the through his whole career. There's someone who watched him play and win that Open at 18 or 19 or whatever, 1999, and said this guy's going to be the poorest ball striker on the US Tour his whole career. He said, what do you mean? He's an amazing player. Yeah. But, you know, to mess with that slightly shut face, bowed wrist, which is all very fashionable now, at the top of the swing, to, you know, to mess with that and change that. I remember David saying to me, yeah, I think his face is too shut. We're trying to get, you know, get the club face more open at the top. But if you get the club face more open at the top, but the kid's used to releasing it with a shut face from the, well, well, well a face that's shut at the top, then it's a dangerous thing to mess with, I think. I agree. It seems to me to be dangerous to mess with. Well, you, you know. we were talking earlier before we came on the, the air that you know the I've been working with Brendan Todd and he's basically went through the same thing that you talked about. He was getting messed around with different instruction, all backswing and downswing related and everything like that. And he basically didn't wasn't able to hit the ball because we had that the yang was not matching the ying thing on the other side, and that's obviously what happened to Aaron as well. Yeah, and I remember well. I watched Lydia, which was that Lydia and Seve played the best golf I'd ever seen at Royal Melbourne. Obviously, Lydia's was much different, but she took that course apart. She understood it. She understood where to drive. She understood where to bounce the ball to get the ball to finish up in a certain spot on the greens. She won the Open there, the Australian Open as a still a teenager, probably. Yeah, she was. She was the best player in the world at the time. She won by. I don't know how many shots she won by, but she was never going to lose and she never hit a bad shot. And then two years later, 
David Ledbetter tells her her swing's no good and she needs to employ the A swing. And what does A stand know, for? I, I I can think of it. <laughs> I'm not sure, but yeah. But um, you know, she finished second last of, of the of the cut misses at the British Open at Wurman a couple of weeks ago. I saw she played better this week, which was great. I mean, Lydia's a great kid. I I think an amazing player. But you know, how could how can you go from? I don't get how you can be taught by in New Zealand by Guy Wilson from well from when you're six years old. So John Lister and Bob McDonald taught her how to play golf on a golf course. And Guy taught her the technique. So you take her from six years old to winning the Canadian Open at 15 as an amateur and then, and then number one in the world at 17 or 18. And you leave that teacher to go and see someone else. I mean, I don't, get, I don't care who it is. You know, what are you doing? So, so it's, uh, you know, and, and, and if you're going to see someone else, then you better treat that swing with kid gloves. Don't throw it out and say, that's no good. Let's employ something else. You know, I mean, you, you know, if someone's the best player in the world, your job's to maintain it, not change it, I think. I always thought that interesting with Tiger. You know, he's had a lot of swing changes. And, oh, yeah. You know, he, he was obviously a great player through his whole career. He didn't really have to mess with anything. And, and my, my big thing with that is, you know, Tiger Woods, and I've played golf with him. I'm sure you've watched him play. Probably you might have played with him as well. But he, um, you know, he's obviously been the best if not the best you know with nicholas and what have you but yeah, yeah who if you're that good who's going to be able to tell you anything so why would you listen yeah i mean technically your swing was probably better at pebble beach in 2000 than it was, than it was at augusta in 97 but was the golf you played better maybe but you know but but then he changed it twice more after that but, um, yeah, look, it's, yeah. I mean, to me, I look at Roger Federer play tennis and I see a body that looks pretty much the same as it did at 38, as it did at 19. Yeah. It's obviously perhaps a bit less flexible, I'm not sure, but he, he doesn't look like he's put on any weight. It doesn't look, you know, any, he doesn't look any musclier or stronger or, you know, it looks pretty much the same. It probably isn't quite the same, but it looks pretty much the same. Tiger's body from 97 to now looks completely different. You know, he completely changed the shape of his body. And I suspect that if he'd done what Federer did, done the, done the same exercises that Roger was doing, not that I've got any clue what they were, but and, and maintained as much as he could that, that shape that he had at, as a 20-year-old, he, he would have, I mean, I, I, mean, I think there's a, I just discussed with someone the other day, there's a good argument to say the most disappointing career ever in golf was Tiger Woods. <laughs> don't, don't you think? Yeah, you know, you're as, right. As, as great as he was, you know, I think that 25 majors was, 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 was the thing for him. I mean, he must have missed a, four years of play, hadn't he? 15 was a disappointment, I think, given how much better he was than everyone else. And, and, and you can make the same argument that, Jack's 18 was pretty disappointing as well, given he was second 19 times. Yeah. You know, I mean, I mean, there were two guys that conservatively, I mean, they both easily could have won 25. And I'm sure they were given some, but mostly they won them fair up, straight up with great play, great play for the first 69 holes and, and then great play for the last 30 minutes if, if they needed it. So, you know, 15 majors for Tiger was, you know, clearly he's the, best or you know, his records been bettered only by Nicholas. But you can make the argument that 
that was a disappointing result given how given where he was in 1997 well this is always a stupid argument because no one really knows the answer but i'll give you my answer in a minute who's out of all the players you know the the one that hasn't won the major who is the best player that never won past or present best player that never won a major yeah uh, um, uh, uh, that's a hard question. Um, Monty's probably there somewhere, doesn't he? All right, that's, that was my pick, Monty. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, I think Jeff Ogilvy played a lot with Monty in Europe and thought he was the best ball striker he played with. You know, Monty was a but you know, but you know, you say that, and then he makes that putt at wing foot in. 06. And they've given him the thing. He, he, you know, he's driven it down the fairway. Given what transpired, this is it, Monty. You're the greatest, probably with Hogan and a couple of like Nicholas, perhaps, you know, the greatest five, six, seven iron player in the history of golf. And I watched Monty play a lot on TV and a, and a lot in Europe when I was there. You give Monty a seven iron, it was inside 15 feet most of the time. So he's, play, he's playing the last hole of the US Open. What you got to do is hit this, hit this seven iron onto the green, and you're going to win. And he fat chunks it short right and makes six. So, I don't know. Did he have the nerve to do it in the end? Not sure. You know, at some point, you've got to man up and do it. And, you know, the, the game gave him, this is it. You know, he makes the 50-footer at 17. The golf gods have said, here, Monty, for all your torment, I'm going to give you this. You've got it. You've just got to, you know, you've. It's got your perfect tee shot down. Well, it actually wasn't a perfect tee shot for him because it was a draw hole. But anyway, he slots it down there. He's got his dream shot. Got his dream shot. Here it is. Knock it on the green and you can have it. And he makes six off, off a seven hole. So who knows, you know? I played, um, with, uh, I played with Monty in the third round in Kran one year, Swiss Open or European hmm. Masters, whatever it was. And we were... It was the best round I've ever played. I actually just put it on my members' website. Yeah. I talked about the best round I've ever seen. And we got on the first hole. You know the course. Um, yeah. Par yeah. five. And, Horrible job. Yeah. <laughs> but Monty Horrible hit job. a three iron on the first to about a foot and hits a seven iron to about a foot and a half on the second. And So anyway, this was basically the whole day he had. I think he shot 61. Mm. And he parred the last four holes. He could have shot way under 60. And... He didn't make a putt longer than six foot, and he basically just walked onto every green and said, I'll just finish, I'll just tap it in. It was the best round I ever saw play. Yeah, yeah. But he was a, he was a, he was an amazing player, Monty. And, but here's an interesting thing. Remember, because I, I went to see Led better, as most guys did in Europe in the 80s. And I think, I think David, you, know, you look at the guys he taught, those Frost, Price, McNulty, Watson, and then Feldo. I mean, he had an amazing group of players he did incredible things with, with their techniques but I remember Monty came out I remember watching him swing with da- David was there and I said what would you do with that swing and he said he looked at me and he said where would you start <laughs> and Monty was smart enough to know never to mess with it because you could have messed with that swing and just destroyed it but he was smart enough never to mess with it and it was a it was, it was a brilliant player Monty well speaking of coaches who did you know, you said you went and saw Day. You didn't really have a full-time coach or a long-term coach. You just no. shift around, or yeah, I, I saw. De- I think Dennis Pugh helped me a lot in England. Um, I spoke to Mac a lot about it. Mac O'Grady. I mean, I thought Mac was a genius when it came to the golf swing. 
I spoke to Mac a lot about it. Um, I saw Ledbetter a few times. Yeah, I, I saw lots of guys. Jeff Parzell a bit when I was starting out because Parz was a state coach. But you know, Parz was a he was a product of his time. He he, he won the Vic Open at Yarra. My first Vic Open I played in at Yarra Yarra when Johnny Miller played. I mean, he beat Norman and Miller. And he was a uh, club yeah, so, pro, wasn't he? He was a club pro. Yeah, he was a club pro there. And he was a tremendous player. But Parz just taught what he thought he did. Take it back wide, you know. And he was a really good player. Hit it with a strong, powerful cut. Terrific player. But he, he, he taught the way he played, what, what he thought he did, I think. What yeah, I think a him. lot of coaching's like that too. It's pretty subjective yeah. when you can sort of try and feed along what you feel or what you think. But that's yeah. not for everyone. Like you said, you've got to be careful. Yeah. Well, that's it for another episode of Bradley Hughes Golf Podcast. For more information about my golf instruction, check out my website, bradleyhughesgolf.com. If you like to watch golf videos to make you a better player, sign up for my members-only site, bradleyhughesgolf-members.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.